All right, so last week we laid the foundation. Last week we talked quite a bit about the fact that you did not make yourselves, God made you. And he made you with a specific purpose that he had in mind, not you. So he made you to carry out a work, to do a job, to, to, to fulfill a purpose, if you will. And he created you in such a way that he did not want you to do that by yourself. You can't be a hermit, live on an island, just you and God and get along. That's not how he designed us. He designed us to carry out the work that he created us to do for him, for his good pleasure. He designed us to carry out that work, one, first of all, in union with him. Perfect unity with God. Secondly, because we are the body of Christ, he designed us to carry out our work together, collectively. So we talked a little bit about the importance of coming together for the purpose of satisfying the will of God and carrying out the work that he's given us, each one of us individually to do, and how to do that together. It's one thing when it's you and God, because God is perfect and you're not, but you carry the short end of that stick. But when it's you and me, and we all have to get along together, that's where authority comes in. And this is where the tool of authority, understanding how to walk in authority, is absolutely vital for us to come together as the body of Christ to carry out his work. So we laid that foundation last week. And, uh, of course, the destiny is that once we've done that, once we've come together in unity, once we've come together in our purpose and carried out the will of God, then we receive the promise, right? The promise is that then he comes for his bride without spot or wrinkle, and he takes us up with him, and uh, we have completed the work. So authority is the pathway to unity, and unity then is our fuel for that destiny. We talked about that last week. Don't have time to go back over that. Then we got into some uh, dynamics of authority. We started to talk about the, the uh, people or the parties in authority, the source, where it all starts with the source. If someone has authority, they're going to delegate authority to the receiver of authority. And it's not for the receiver's benefit or the source's benefit, but it's for the benefit of somebody else that they've delegated that. And then we started to talk about uh, responsibility. So let's get into that. Put slide five up, if you would, uh, on our PowerPoints. We had this picture up here, and we talked about authority. And, you know, authority conjures up a lot of different images, and sometimes it's overpowering, it's overwhelming, and, and the hammer might have that feel to you. But the reality is we talked about the hammer as a tool. And the tool of a hammer, a carpenter's hammer like that, is to put in a nail. And that's its, its responsibility, if you will. That's what it's designed to do. And we talked about how you can use a hammer for other good things. If you want to crack walnuts open, nothing wrong with that. You can use a hammer for that. And we also talked about how you could break a window open to rob a house. I mean, that's a bad thing to use that tool for. You don't want to use authority for a bad thing. Um, but it's just a tool to carry out a responsibility. So here we started talking about the dynamics. So a responsibility is always delegated first. And I share with you some insight of my wife and I at school and ministry some 20 years ago and how um, she got it right and, and I did not, but <laughs> uh, that's okay. Uh, you learn from your mistakes. So responsibility is always delegated first and then the appropriate authority to carry out that responsibility. And that authority is, again, just a tool to carry along or to carry out your responsibility. And the responsibility is part and parcel of carrying out or fulfilling a purpose. Now, there's different kinds of responsibilities. Take the hammer, for example. If you were building a little dollhouse and you had small pieces of wood and little brads, you'd probably want a tack hammer. Right? If you're building a normal house and framing, doing some framing work, a carpenter's hammer is perfectly good. But if you're putting in a railroad in the old-fashioned way with a spike, you probably want a sledgehammer. 
So there's different amounts of authority or different types of authority that go with the responsibility, depending on what it is you're trying to carry out. So it's always good to match the authority with the responsibility, and then you understand why you have the authority. So, you know, as an example, tonight I have the responsibility to teach on authority to you. So, Pastor John, he's the source. He has given me this responsibility to teach on authority. That means I can't stand up here and expound upon thermodynamics, nor would you want me to. <laughs> but I get the privilege of teaching on authority. So, so there's some limits to my responsibility, and I have to stay on course with the topic here. And also, it's in, during the time of the message. So I'm not up here leading worship, and again, you wouldn't want me to do that. We have others who are gifted to do that, but my job is to teach on authority, and I have a time limit as well. You should be thankful for that. <laughs> Even Jesus had limits on his authority, and Pastor John has talked about this in weeks past, uh, Matthew chapter 20 and 23. I don't know if you have the scripture. We do. Very good. Uh, so uh, G- uh, Jesus said to them, uh, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit at my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but is for those to whom prepared for uh, by my Father. So you can see clearly Jesus in his walk on the earth, he had limits to what he could delegate out uh, in his walk. And we'll talk more about his responsibility on the earth as we get through tonight's lesson. So... So responsibility is always delegated to carry out a a purpose, and authority goes along with that. And, uh, and, And so when the responsibility is complete, there's no more need for authority. Does that make sense? Right? So I've been assigned to teach the class. That's my responsibility. I have authority over you during the message time. That means I can ask you to move forward. Some of you complied. Some of you did not. And uh, so there will be some discussion on accountability in just a few minutes. <laughs> uh, but so, so you have, uh, I, I have that authority over you for the next 45 minutes or the next three weeks. And, and then after that, once the purpose is complete and I've finished the job, I will no longer have that authority over you, nor would I want it. So I can delegate that back to the pastors. And so you can see why authority then, once the responsibility is complete, it gets put away. And when Pastor John went through the flow of authority at the end of it all, when we all get to wrap it up or present it back into God, and we are all taken up in the air with him, we won't need authority on the earth because there will be a whole new thing going on. And that's an exciting thing to look forward to. You can put your hammer back in the toolbox, essentially, when the nails are in. Right? That makes good sense. Now, when authority or responsibility are delegated, they're also retained. Uh, I know not all of you are parents out there. Obviously, Debbie and I are, but you've all been kids, and you've probably all been asked to take out the trash. And if my son, if I said, take out the trash, well, Tuesday night, take out the trash, the trashman comes on Wednesday, and he doesn't take out the trash, it still has to go out. Guess who gets to do it? Yeah, I do, right? So even though I delegate the responsibility to my son to carry out the trash, if he doesn't take it to the end of the curb, it won't get picked up unless I do. And I'm certainly not going to ask Debbie to do it. So, so I do it, right? So you still have the responsibility. If Pastor John didn't want me, or, or he wanted me to take a deeper dive into authority, but obviously he has the ability to do himself. As I mentioned last week, this is content that he created. So if I wasn't available or chose not to do it or rebelled in some way, he, he obviously would then pick it up and either give it to someone else to do or, or do it himself. So the responsibility is still retained 
uh, even when it's been delegated. So think about this from your work standpoint. You have a boss, your boss has asked you to do a job, and if you fail to do that job the way your boss wants you to do it, well, your boss is kind of stuck holding the bag, aren't they? And you can see why they might get a little bit ornery with you if you don't carry it out. So it's important to understand that even though you've delegated responsibility to someone, you still retain it and you need to follow up on something. Another point on that is that as a person in authority, so this topic gives authority not only to walk under authority, but also in authority. And when you're in authority, you want to understand that you have the authority specifically to carry out the responsibility. What happens oftentimes, particularly those who are unrenewed or haven't been through a course like this, they get the authority and they think it's all about them. And they think, wow, I now have supervision over 10 people, aren't I the man? Now I can teach 100 people, aren't I the teacher? No, it's not about that at all. It's not about the ego trip. If you in authority can stay focused on the responsibility, the purpose that you have, then that authority does not become a point of pride or a point of power, and it does not get abused when you do that. There's a lot of elements to uh, responsibility and authority that go hand in, in glove. Let's see the next PowerPoint, if you would, please. Here's a phrase that I, I picked up when I was doing some study on it. Authority without responsibility is tyranny. And responsibility without authority is impotence. So as you can imagine, if somebody had total authority, and we're going to see that somewhere in just a few minutes, Without any responsibility, they have the opportunity to rule over us tyrannically. And that's a bad situation. On the other hand, as you become a, a person in authority, you delegate a responsibility to somebody else, if you micromanage them, they are impotent to carry out the work that you've given them to do. For example, if Pastor John said, I want you to teach this class tonight, but I want you to use my notes. Well, I've looked at his notes. It is one page for about 17 hours of preaching. You know, I'd be done in 10 minutes. <laughs> I couldn't use his notes. You know, it's kind of like David trying to put on Saul's armor. It just doesn't work, right? So he, but he gives me the ability then to have some authority to take the content that he wants me to teach and put it into a format that I can teach. What's the next slide look like? Here's another way to look at it. It's a, it's a chart, right? So if you are, have little responsibility and you have little authority, you have apathy, Parents take note. If you don't delegate any responsibility to your children and you give them no authority, then it's no wonder your kids are apathetic. They sit back and don't want to do anything except have you make them dinner and bring them dinner. Don't do that. On the other hand, if you give a responsibility out but don't give them the authority to carry it out, you have frustration. Have you ever been frustrated on your job? I hear a few yeses. Anybody else? Yes? There's a couple of reasons why that might be. One might be that you're frustrated because your boss hasn't given you authority, you've gotten a bad attitude, and now they sense the bad attitude in you, and so your boss, he or she, doesn't want to give you any more authority because of your bad attitude. In other words, you think you can do the job better than your boss can. And that comes out. I have people who work for me. I work under a boss as well. And that, you can tell when somebody is not lined up, when they're not getting on board. So part of the reason you're frustrated may be because you have shown a bad attitude to your supervisor, and they're not willing to give you the authority that you need to carry out your responsibility. On the other hand, your supervisor may not have given you the authority, and you have a good attitude. Well, make that attitude be magnified. 
Find out what your supervisor wants you to do. Find out what his or her responsibility is. How big is their job and how does your piece of it get in and flow with that piece of responsibility so your piece fits in the whole picture and then they suddenly recognize you're an asset to the situation and then they start to release to you more authority. See how that works? So it's important to be in the engaged box. You want to be up there in that top right corner where you have the right amount of responsibility and the right amount of authority. And again, when the responsibility is complete, you put the authority back in the toolbox. Now, there's one more aspect of it. We'll see the next slide. And it is here. So here we see the authority dynamics. So we talked about this initially last week, for those of you who weren't here. Uh, responsibility starts with the source, and it's given to a receiver. Not only is the responsibility given, but the authority to carry that out. Of course, as I mentioned last week, that it seems obvious, right? The source, the receiver, makes sense. But how often have you tried to take things into your own hands? How often have you been a receiver by taking things into your own hands because you've been frustrated with the source? It hasn't been delegated to you. Now you start to do somebody's work that you haven't been called to do. And that becomes a problem. That becomes a burden for you and for the one over you. So the source delegates to the receiver a responsibility and authority to carry it out, and that is always for a purpose, and a beneficiary is never the receiver or the source, it's for somebody else. This is God's way of doing it. Obviously not everybody does it this way, but this is, if you can get this into your mind, this is God's way of carrying it out. But the last point, and this is vital, is that there's also accountability which flows back the other way. So when somebody has delegated you a responsibility, that person over you should be holding you accountable to carry that out in a way he or she wants you to do it. Does that make sense? If there's no accountability, there's really no delegation of responsibility because you could do it or not. I don't feel like cleaning my room today. Well, if, if your parent says, clean the room, then you need to clean the room. You need to be responsible to do it. And if you choose not to, there needs to be consequences. Let me expand on that example a little bit more. If you're a parent and you have a young child, you want to make sure that you teach the child how you want the room cleaned. It's wrong for you as one in authority to go and inspect the room and, and yell at the child for doing a bad job if you yourself haven't taught them first how to do it. So you need to set the standard. What is it that's clean for you? What do you mean? I mean, some people is like, well, just make sure there's nothing on the floor so I can vacuum. Other people is like, well, if I run my hand across the top of the molding and I find some dust, you're in trouble. I don't know which one you are. That's up to you. <laughs> uh, but somewhere in the middle probably is a good balance, right? You need to show your child how you want the room clean. And then you need to explain to them, look, if you aren't going to clean the room the way I want it done, and I come in and look at it, and it's not right, then you're going to lose some privileges. Maybe we'll take away your Game Boy, or, you know, you're five years old, you've got a cell phone already, it's a smartphone, it's probably $1,000. We're going to take that away from you. <laughs> I know that's a little bit extreme, but maybe not. Um, there has to be some consequences. And if they fail to do it, you've got to carry out those consequences. So it's important that there's an accountability that goes back with the responsibility. And as you go in and inspect the room and the child loses his privileges, eventually he learns what you want or she learns what you want, and then eventually the room is the way you want it. Happy child, happy parent, no privileges lost, everything goes well. However, that doesn't mean you should stop inspecting. We have a phrase in the workplace, we say, inspect what you expect. So if you're in authority, you should inspect what it is you expect to be done. That doesn't mean be a judge over it, but it means just make sure it's done the way you want it, and if it's not, make an adjustment or tweak here and there. 
And uh, so you inspect what you expect. And it's holding someone accountable for the standards that you have set. It's vital to understand that accountability applies not only to something as simple like cleaning a room, but it also applies to the work that we've been called to do as a church. God's going to hold us accountable for the work. Remember last week I showed you in the scriptures that God prepared us. He made us. He knew us beforehand, and he prepared us for a purpose, for a work which he designed us to do. He's going to hold you and me accountable to do that work, whatever it might be. And so it's important that we recognize that when we come to that last day, we meet him at the throne of judgment, he's going to look at the work and judge what we've done. If you look at the seven letters written by the head of the church, Jesus, to the seven churches at the beginning, uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, every one of those references, I know your works. doesn't say, I know your intentions. doesn't say, I know your heart. He says, I know your works. And he's going to say that to us, Faith Christian Center, I know your works. And we want to make sure that he's well pleased with the works that he has given us to do. Now I say that to recognize this, and that is obedience is the standard, not necessarily the results. Now you have to be careful here. But obedience is key. We go back to the child and the cleaning the room. If, let's say, the child's only five years old and you have a fairly high standard for cleaning the room, if the child struggles, he really is in there laboring for a couple of hours, he can't reach the dust on top of the molding over the closet door, whatever it might be, if he's struggling with it uh, and he comes and says, hey, mom, I need some help, I can't quite get that, but everything else is good, or, or, or um, you recognize that because he's only five, he has limitations, can't fold his shirts very nicely, whatever, um, but he's tried. You're pleased as a parent. You're very happy that that child has really given it his all. He's really wanted to please you. And God will look at us the same way in a sense that says, you've done what I've called you to do, and I'm holding you accountable to that obedience. He's called us as a church to bring the ministry of reconciliation. Right. He's called us to go out and tell people good news. You can now be joined back together with God. You have that opportunity to tell people about that. And if you tell people about that, God is going to be pleased with the fact that you told people. Now, whether those people choose to receive Christ as Lord, you will not be held accountable for that. You'll be held accountable for whether you told them. So obedience is the standard. You were told to go. God told Jeremiah to go preach to the kingdom of Judah. And he even said they're not going to repent, but go preach them repentance. Jeremiah's probably thinking, what's up for that, God? I mean, you're already sending me on an errand that can be a failure. But the point is, he did not fail. He went and preached as he was told to do. And God um, commended him for that. That's, that's the obedience. So whatever God has told you to do, that's what he's going to hold you accountable to do. Not necessarily whether the fruit of that has manifest as you see it or as you expected it to do. Does that make sense to you? Okay, is there any questions on the dynamics of authority? I hate to open it up to questions, but did I go over something too quickly? Is there anything that confused anybody or wanted me to reiterate something? Anybody are good. Awesome. So you guys are ready to walk in it already. Good, because next week we're going to talk about submission. All right. But before we get there, we need to understand a couple of other things. One thing I want to teach you a little bit about is the fact that authority uh, comes 
from within to the renewed believer. So let's first understand who it is that gave us authority and then how he made us in his image. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can look there as well. I want you to see it, um, but we'll put the scripture up for you. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, Verse 3a, then God said, and we'll stop there. The first word we see in the beginning, God, this is a Hebrew word, or a Hebrew name, Elohim. Most of you are aware that our Bible is written primarily, the Old Testament primarily written in Hebrew and the New Testament primarily written in Greek. And so from time to time, from the pulpit, we'll reference the original language. Why? Because that brings out some depth of understanding. So when we look at this word Elohim, it means supreme God. It's the God of gods. It's the ultimate God. There's no other God but this God uh, who's really God. This is who created the heavens and the earth. But what's interesting about this Hebrew word is that it's in the plural form. So we see Elohim, while it's one word, it's also in the Hebrew language known to be a plural word. Like there is a, uh, uh, or ours is a plural word in, in our language. This Elohim, supreme God, implies a plurality, which of course we understand today means the Trinity. In this verse, we see in verse 1, uh, so we see the God the Father, uh, and we see God the Son, and we see God the Holy Spirit. You might look and say, well, if we go back to say, well, where is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Well, here we see God, Elohim, uh, and, and he, the plurality of them, created the heavens of the earth. So the Father's in there. The next verse, verse 2, we see um, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the water. So he's, he's waiting for the command to come. Uh, and then we see in verse 3, we see, Then God said, and God said is his word, and God's word is his son. Right, so we understand that in John 1 and 2, uh, first, uh, yeah, chap- John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then we know, of course, that John 1, 14, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and uh, we beheld His glory as the glory that begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know, of course, the Word is the Son of God. So nothing was made except through the Word of God. And we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. So the way God operates, that what we can glean from these first three verses of Genesis, and by the way, the book of Genesis is a tremendous book of the Bible because in it are the seeds, the beginnings of all of the principles of the Bible. You can pull things out of Genesis that that relate to all of our our principal doctrines in our Christian faith. It's a wonderful book to study. But one of them here, of course, we're expounding on the Trinity, and we can learn a little bit about God. We can see God the Father at the center, at the root, and, the, and God the Son, now he's responsible for uh, executing or carrying out what it is the will of the Father is, what's in the heart of the Father. The Son is the one who's, who's going to be held accountable to do that. And then the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. He's waiting for the word to be spoken. As soon as the word is spoken, the Holy Spirit's in action, things are created. Does that make sense? You can put that next PowerPoint up. Next one. 
So here we see an image, and these are pictured as a giant sphere. It covers all of the universe, all of creation. Because <laughs> God is everywhere. You can't hide from God, right? But in the center of that is the heart, is the Father. And then surrounding that in a spherical way is the Son. And the Holy Spirit, without any boundaries or kind of dotted lines there, express or imagine, if you will, the Holy Spirit everywhere. This is God Elohim. So in here we have a trinity, but there's no authority because they're one. Three in one, right? So the Father uh, expresses his desire, the Son carries out, the Holy Spirit manifests it. But you don't have the Holy Spirit going, man, why do I get the heavy lifting? I don't want to do that job. Son, why don't you step it up and do some of that? And the, and the Father isn't sitting there going, no, you two stop fighting, get it done. No, there, there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no conflict within the being. They all work as one. Why? Because God is love and love is complete and whole. So there's no need for authority in here. They work together. They flow together in unity. They're one being. It's hard to wrap our brain around it. Three distinct persons, but one being. This is the Trinity. So it's interesting that God also made us in his image. So if we go down to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll read in verse 26. God said, let us, there's that plural thing again, let us make man in our, another plural word, in our likeness, in our image, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. All right, we'll stop at verse 27 for now. And so... Uh, so what we see here is let us, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so he makes Adam. And, and so God, first of all, I want you to remember, I, might, I said this last week, I'm going to say it over and over again. God makes man. We are the creation. Yeah, right. And oftentimes we lose sight. We think we're all that in a bag of chips and we're not. We are a creation. God made us. Always remember who he is. When you come in here and there's a reverence for the Lord, because he is creator, he is your maker, and you bow your head and you bow your knee and you worship humbly before him, you are going to see things that you have never seen before. Know who he is. God made man. So Adam was created, but he was created uniquely from the rest of creation. He is the only creation that was made in the image of God. So what, he was, uh, what was unique about him is that Adam is a spirit being like God is. He was made as a spirit being. He has a soul, which is his mind, his will, and emotions. And, of course, he was put in a body suitable for carrying out the work on the earth. Right? That's our, we call it our earth suit. So, so he, Adam, and his race are to function in the likeness or the similar, similar kind of like God. <laughs> Same as the way God functions. Uh, so the way he's supposed to function is that Adam as a spirit being operates from the will of his spirit. That communicates to his body through his soul and his body then carries out the work on the earth. Just like God did. Does that make sense? That's how he made us. So there should be no dissension. There should be no strife between our, our flesh and our soul and our spirit just like God is. It's vital that you get this because as you walk in submission to him, you're going to know where that source is coming from. So God makes Adam in his likeness, in his image, and he puts him on the earth. In verse 28 of Genesis, it says, Then God blessed them. Uh, chapter 1, Genesis 28. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and uh, have dominion 
over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So good news is that when God made us, when he made Adam, the first thing he did was poured his blessing out on them. That's awesome, because we can't do anything without him, right? And the fact that he's blessed this of what he's made is a wonderful thing. And then he gave us a responsibility. He said, okay, mankind, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That's your job. You have a job. And he also said, now, because you have a responsibility to fill the earth and subdue the earth, you need to have dominion, authority, and the authority that you need to have is over all the earth. And verse 26 is, is, says specifically that let them have dominion over all the earth. This is God's will. And then in verse 28, he's, he's more specific about especially the creepy things on the earth. You need to have dominion over them. But God gives us a responsibility to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and therefore the appropriate authority over the earth, which is to carry out that responsibility. Makes perfectly good sense. You with me? All right. Very good. So let's see how this works. In Genesis 2.19, we see uh, God and Adam cooperating together on the earth. And uh, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he, Adam, would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Whatever Adam spoke, whatever he said, whatever he confessed, whatever he used his tongue for, so it was. He gave Adam authority over the earth and a responsibility. So he had a responsibility to have dominion over the earth. Therefore, all the animal kingdom will be subject to Adam. And as part of that, he had the privilege to name them. And whatever he named them, it was. God didn't say, nah, don't use hippopotamus. It's too hard to say. You know, God said, okay, if that's what you want to say, hippopotamus, then it's up to you. Go, go do that. Right? So, so, so God yielded to the desire of Adam to name the animals what he named them. He gave us authority over the earth. That's really cool. We know that from Genesis 3, 8, that, that God and Adam often walked in the cool of the day in the garden. They were together. His spirit and, one spirit and, and man's spirit and God's spirit were, were together. And they were carrying out their responsibility. He was vitally connected to the source of life. Let's see the next PowerPoint. Here we go. So here you see God, Elohim, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one being. And he made man in his image, spirit, soul, and body. And notice this, the colors match, the dark part of the inside, the spirit to spirit. This is where it all drives from. This is where authority comes from. It's from within. It's from your spirit, man. This is how God made it, right? And now your spirit is going to communicate with your soul, your mind, your will, and emotions to motivate your body to do the work on the earth. And you can't do it alone. You need to be staying connected with the Holy Spirit so that he can lead and guide you when you start to, to stray a little bit. He will keep you on track. He will show you the way to get it done. This is how it worked in the garden. That's pretty cool. Let me give you an example. So let's say, for instance, I, I happen to work in, in Brockton, Massachusetts. Those of you who know Brockton is not exactly a very pleasant town, uh, falling on some hard times. But let's say for, for story's sake, I leave work and I'm walking down the center of Main Street and there's a jewelry store downtown. And let's say it's my, my wife's birthday. And I happen to have gone to the bank the day before and I have a nice crisp $100 bill. And uh, my intention, because I'm a last minute kind of guy and I have to go home, is to get her a gift on the way to my car. So I'm going to go to the jewelry store and take the $100 and buy her a nice set of earrings and bring them home to bless her as a birthday present. It's really sweet of me, right? Come on, guys. Give me some help here. <laughs> right? So that's good stuff. So that's my plan. Now, 
the way I'm supposed to work is as I walk down the street, I happen to notice a homeless man on the side of the road. And the Spirit of God prompts my spirit and said, I want you to give that $100 to the homeless man. And my spirit jumps for joy. Says, oh, this is awesome. Because I know that when I give, it comes back to me, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I know that what you really want the church to do, if nothing else, is take care of the poor and the widows. I have the opportunity to bless this homeless man with this $100 bill. And I love the fact that God has given me that specific direction to do it. I pull out the $100 bill. I say, God bless your brother, and I'm on my way. And then I go to get a card because that's all the cash I have left. <laughs> that's how it's supposed to work. And when I get home, my wife is so understanding and lovely, and she would say, oh, you follow God's will today. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how God set it up. That's how he wants us to walk. He wants us to hear his voice and to do his work on the earth. And by blessing that hundred dollars, we don't know where that went. But how does it really happen today, even amongst us who should be renewed to this story? What really happens, oh, there's a homeless man. Oh, I only have a $100 bill. Oh, we start to reason. He'll probably use it for drugs. Oh, my wife will be so mad if I don't get her those earrings. Oh, if I cross the street, I won't have to smell them. You know, because they sometimes smell bad. And then I won't get bothered by them. And then you go home, or you go to the jewelry store, I get the earrings, and off you go. That's what we do. We listen to our flesh, we listen to our reasoning, and we don't even pay attention to our spirit. That's... That's the fallen man. But we are a renewed man. We are set back in the right order the way this is set up. So can you understand how it is that we should respond to authority, particularly God's authority? It comes from within. We have to recognize that and then be obedient to follow the leading of the Spirit. We have to listen to His voice. This earth, this world is so noisy there are so many distractions. There are so many things pounding at us day in and day out that if you, I mean, if it, you can't just get it here. You need to be listening to them all the time. That doesn't mean you need to spend hours a day, but you need to spend within the hour all the time listening to his voice and, and following his leading. Good. Now, a couple of other key points here. For the gifts of calling, Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, uh, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So we go back to our story of Adam on the earth. He's given us responsibility to fill the earth, subdue it, and, and, uh, and multiply on it, uh, and the authority to carry that out. He's not going to take that back. And what's neat about it is the fact that when, when God and Adam, when Adam and Eve were on the earth, verse Genesis chapter 2, 25, it says they were both naked, he and his wife, they weren't ashamed. They were in perfect unity with God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Their spirit and his spirit were one. They walked about carrying out their work together with no shame. Why? Because there was no sin. There's nothing to be ashamed of. They were beautiful creations in the presence of their creator. And it just doesn't get any better than that. And so it's a beautiful story. Now, what happens, of course, is that the story gets disrupted. And Satan comes to take the authority from Adam. And I won't spend too much time on that. Um, but I do need to let you understand or make sure you understand how that happened. First of all, who is Satan? Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 9. Uh, it says that war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So right here we see that Satan is a created being, somebody that God made, and he's in the, in the category of species of angels. 
And, uh, but the good news is in verse 8, they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Uh, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with them. So what's happening here is that Satan rebelled against God. Pastor John's already going over this. But they rebelled against God and so they were cast to the earth as a prison, as a holding place until their judgment comes. And so when you think about prisoners, there's not a whole lot of rights or authorities they have here. They're just waiting here, right? All right, well, let's see what happens. Go to Genesis chapter 3. And remember last week I told you to bring your Bibles? You know, we've got to do some sword drills. I'm giving you the easy ones. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to understand the fall because if you don't understand the fall, you, don't, you won't understand your salvation and you won't understand how to walk in it. So let's have a look at it again. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent, Satan we're talking about here, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you, you shall not eat it of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Suddenly there's shame here. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Mm, what a sad, sad story. What happens here? So we have this fallen angel, um, and he's put in here as a prison. Now, what we just read was, who has the authority on the earth? Adam, Adam right? Does Satan have any authority? No. no. Right, because he's now inhabited the body of a serpent. Why? Because you have to have a body, some kind of an earth suit to operate on the earth. So he inhabits this serpent to operate on the earth, and he begins to chatter with Eve. And uh, he had no authority to do it, but of course he opened the door uh, and she opened, uh, accepted his offer by having conversation with him. But he didn't have any power over them. He didn't have any sway over them. He just brought deceit. He brought temptation and he instilled doubt in them about the word of God. Right? So his temptation was that they could be like God and they forgot about the fact that they were already made like God. Yeah. Right? Uh, he, he instilled doubt by challenging the word of God. Did he really say? What did he really mean by that? And then he tricked them by using, getting them to use their reasoning. And here's the key. Nowhere in here does it say that they stopped and consulted God, in whom they were in perfect union with. They didn't listen to that inner man, that inner spirit man. They listened to their reasoning and their flesh that said the fruit looked like it was good to eat. And if it was going to make them wise, is reasoning. And so they consumed the fruit without listening to the spirit man who was probably screaming at them to kick the devil out. So they didn't do what they should have done. And uh, instantly, two catastrophic things took place. Let's see the, the PowerPoint, 12. So here we have the same man, but now suddenly... There's this thing called sin. Their disobedience, because of their disobedience, and by the way, Adam made a choice. He looked at the situation and he probably heard the screaming of the Spirit. He knew the Word of God which said, 
uh, take authority, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. And he knew the word of God which said, don't eat of this fruit. But he chose, he made a choice, that's important to know, uh, and by choosing that, he stepped from obedience to God into disobedience. And by disobedience, sin entered the earth. And by sin, death thereby. So what happens is, is in the previous slide, you saw the vital connection between the spirit of man and the spirit of God. That connection is now severed. And sin is now surrounding their bodies. And if you look at the, the dot in the middle, their spirit man is, is essentially, he's alive, but he's not alive connected to the source of life. So now in dying, he'll die. And so sin is surrounding the body and is now, now what's happening is in fallen man, he is no longer led by the spirit, but he's externally led. God intended that we, our authority would come from within, from our spirit man. His authority comes that way, he intended for us. But after the fall, our spirit man loses his dominion and now we're dominated by our flesh and by our reasoning. That's the fallen man story. So his authority is external. And of course we know the manipulator of all that, which is Satan himself, who is the ruler of this age. So on, what happens is we have this scenario, and of course God's heartbroken. You see the arrow. God still wants to be in touch with his man. you show the next slide. So what God does is he, he, he um, takes skins of animals and he covers their body and then through that blood, the shedding of the blood, he atones for or covers their sin. It doesn't take the sin away, but it covers it in such a way that at least externally God and man can somehow at some times and in some ways communicate. He's no longer intimate with man, which is what God wanted. That was God's intent. But now they're separated by sin. But all of the Old Testament, as you read through, through the Moses and the tabernacle and the times of the prophets and the judges, you'll see God connecting with man some ways through this uh, shedding of blood and the atonement. I don't have time to go into all that detail. But this is the story of all of the Old, Old Testament until the time of Christ. So the responsibility... So the second catastrophic thing, the first thing is we're separated from God. The second catastrophic thing is that the authority over the earth is given to Satan. Say, so, well, I didn't see that in the scripture. Well, let's take a look at two scriptures that show you that. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one slave to whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. What happens here is because Adam chose to obey the temptation of the devil, he chose to become under or serve under or be submissive to Satan. So he took all of that authority that he had over the earth and now stepped under the authority of Satan and now Satan has the authority over the earth. It was as simple as that, and Satan knew it. And so by getting him to succumb to the temptation, choose against God and choose for him, for Satan, he then takes all the authority. Second Peter 2.19 says it similar, similarly. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So Adam was overcome by Satan, and now he is in bondage under him. So he chose to submit, and that made Satan their Lord. Now, interestingly, Satan gets the authority, but who has the responsibility? Adam. 
Adam, right? But now suddenly the earth doesn't cooperate with him anymore. Suddenly you've got briars and thorns. Now by the sweat of the brow, he has to till the ground. Suddenly he has the responsibility to try to subdue the earth, but he doesn't have control over the authority and everything is now working against him. That's the story of fallen man. He's separated from God. He can no longer do it. Um, so God now, God the Father, has to send God the Son to come to the earth to redeem man. And God the Son has to put aside the glory of the Father and come in the form of a man because God said that man would have authority over the earth. So he puts aside his glory, and he comes in the form of a man. And we don't have a lot of time to go through the story. You guys already know this. Um, but what's important here, actually, go to slide 14. Let's finish out the story here, just so you can see. So now we have the Redeemer. So again, he steps off the throne. He comes to earth. He is now born. His father is God, not man. And, and the bloodline comes from the father. So he does not have a sin nature. He has God's nature. But he has a soul and he lives in a body, right? And he comes to live on the earth just as you and I came to live on the earth. And he came not for his own glory, for his own purpose, but specifically to redeem fallen man from the situation that he is in. So he came because he had the responsibility to save us. Philippians 2, chapter, Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8. Paul describes it this way. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's kind of a weird expression. I always wonder what that meant. He didn't think it robbery. In other words, he didn't think it was sinful. Jesus, who walked on the earth, did not feel it was sinful to say, I'm equal with God. That's how much he and God were the same. He said, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found as a, in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, uh, even death on the cross. Fascinating that when Jesus walked on the earth, he was tempted in all ways as we are. This is Jesus. So he came in the form of a man in such a way that he could understand every temptation that you've ever had. Everyone. As hideous as that may sound, don't go too far down that rabbit trail. Okay? But Jesus was tempted. But he did not sin. He remained fully and disciplined to do only what he saw his father do. And that is the key to why he never fell under the sway of the wicked one. Because he only chose to subject himself to the will of the father. So even though he was tempted just as everything, and can you imagine, I mean, just, all right, guys, there's this woman crying and cleaning your, her, your feet with her long hair. I mean, can you imagine? Maybe he had a, a, a strange thought, but the thought never, he never accepted that thought. He rejected it immediately. That's not my father's will. That thought is not of me. That thought is of the devil. Get away from me, Satan. He had those thoughts. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a high priest who could be uh, sensitive of the feelings that we go through. Yeah. And, but he is, according to Hebrews 4.15. 4, 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus did only what his father told him to do, John 5.19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does 
in like manner. I love this one, John 14, 9 through 11. We're going to go quickly because we're rapidly running out of time. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, so show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Does that sound like Adam and God in the garden? I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. In his obedience, he remained vitally connected to the Father, never had to serve the devil. And he remained focused on his responsibility. This is important because his responsibility now becomes our responsibility as his body on the earth. His responsibility, John, 1 John 3.8 says, uh, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil is sinning from the beginning. For this, purpose, the Son of, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And that's a work that we have to finish up for him. Amen. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He started that process. Romans eight twenty nine says, For whom he knew, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Show slide 15. So here we see the redemption. We see that mankind now has got his old form back when he accepts the, the, the lordship of Christ. Now he can be led by his spirit man because it's hiding with God's spirit man. He's been redeemed, delivered from the power of darkness and into the glorious light, D2L. You recognize that, right? And that is the church. And so now he, Jesus, the Son, is seated at the right hand of the Father and uh, he is waiting for us to finish the job of making his enemies his footstools. Does that make sense? So now our job, not for our glory because we've been redeemed, our job now is to reach fallen men and tell them the good news and give them the opportunity to repent. And our job is to stay focused on being led by the Spirit. So if Jesus came and had the responsibility to fill the earth with Christians, to subdue the earth from the work of the devil, how much authority did Jesus have on the earth? Oh, he had authority over the whole earth, right? What did Jesus do? He calmed the storms, right? He calmed the wind and the waves. He healed the sick. He forgave sins. Right? Jesus had all authority. He even cast out demons. <laughs> there were nothing to him. You know, he told a thousand of them to go in the legion, and off they went. He had authority over all the earth, but it wasn't for his glory. Everything he did was to glorify his Father by carrying out his responsibility, which was to fill the earth with sons and daughters of God, vitally connected to God, and to subdue the earth from the works of the enemy. That was his responsibility. Therefore, he had the authority over it. So he came and he removed our sin. You notice that it's no longer around us anymore, right? Psalm 103, 11 and 12, For as the heavens are as high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's something to shout about. Because there's a lot of sin to be removed. And he took it all. 
He took it all and paid the price for all of us. It's exciting. And now we have access to God through him. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, we'll finish that series of verses off. It says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What we, whatever we say, what Adam said, let us make sure our confession is right. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, always tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, his responsibility was to fill the earth and subdue it. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. The same responsibility falls on our shoulders. We'll talk more about that in in coming classes.